I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you've had a disagreement with God. Don't you think through your life and you, something he allowed or something he did directly in your life and you didn't like it and you felt differently about it. You, you disagreed with who he was or what he did or how he was acting or what he allowed at that moment. And the question I want us to camp on tonight, I think the answer is easy, but the application is what's tougher, is when you and God disagree, who is it that needs to change their mind? (laughs) I said the answer's right there on the surface. It's us. It's the application where we get into trouble. Now, thankfully, in this book of Jonah, we see many examples of people and Jonah himself that needed to line up with what God wanted. Obviously, the city of Nineveh itself, as we've gone through this book, they were at odds with God. They were living one way. We talked about their brutality where they skinned people alive and stuck them on skewers out in the desert, stacked skulls outside of city walls. And God obviously hated that kind of violence and wickedness. And he sent Jonah there to tell them 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. God saw their wickedness and said, I feel differently about that than you do. You need to change. And we know that Nineveh did change. And I thought, how did that change come about? How is it that they disagree with God and how did they line up with him? It wasn't because... They sang a song, you know, like Nineveh was a major city in the nation of Assyria. Their change didn't come about from gathering in large groups at sporting events and singing, God bless Assyria, land that I love, stand beside her. Somebody better sing with me. I'm sorry, I know that's brutal. I love our nation. I believe God has and is blessing our country. I'm thankful to live here But I also believe that there are many people that sing that. Maybe some of us sometimes in a baseball stadium, perhaps, God bless America. And really our idea is, God, we're going to keep living however we want to live, and we just want you to bless us anyway. And sometimes when when we're looking to God and it seems like we're waiting on him to bless us, like, God, when when are you going to bless us more? I imagine him sometimes looking down and saying, you know, you're not really waiting on me. I'm waiting on you. Because my blessing comes when you believe what I've said and you line your lives up with what I've said. I'm waiting on you. And I think that not just at a national level, but all of us as individuals. There's a man with the last name of Hutchison that said, if each man cleaned in front of his own home, the street would be clean." It's easy for us, especially in an election year, to put our magnifying glasses and our microscopes on who's going to be in the White House next and hang all of our hopes on that, but it starts right here, doesn't it? Am I going to line my life up with what God wants? Jonah learned that lesson himself. You remember, he he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated those Assyrians. God got him to that place in the ship where there's this horrible storm. He's thrown overboard. God provides the fish gives him this second chance, and Jonah goes. But in this chapter four that we're in tonight, we're gonna learn that even in his obedience, and even with such great results that this whole city responded to God, Jonah 
disagreed with what God did. And what I want us to see in this interaction between God and Jonah is how gracious God is with his servant. And we ought to find encouragement in this whole chapter. The fact that this conversation exists at all after everything Jonah had already seen of God's grace in his life is just testament to the fact that God loves his children and he's gracious with us. But I want you to look at Jonah's reaction to the revival that swept over Nineveh. Jonah chapter four, verse one and two. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And I try to filter this. You're gonna hear a story about a man named Jack a little bit later that Matt and his wife were able to lead to the Lord this week. The, the timing of reading this passage and Jack, an 82-year-old man coming to know Jesus, it just came together. When that happened, I can't imagine Matt like calling me and being like, I'm so depressed right now. You know, this guy's been living across the street from us for four years, and I don't know how to say this, but uh, he came to believe in Jesus tonight. I'm just bummed. I, can I come over and talk? And <laughs> it was the exact opposite. He's texting. He's calling. He called three people. Scott Madsen got three texts from three different people that night. Jack got saved. It was, it was like a celebration. And you contrast that with Jonah here, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. And we don't have to guess why, okay? Right in the same verses there, he, he tells God. He said, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, I read that list, and I think, man, you know, that's something that's pretty tough to complain about. There are other attributes of God that I struggle with a lot more, you know? He's talking about God being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. I love those, and I think the deal here is Jonah loved those for himself, but he didn't love those for those cruel Assyrians. How bad was it for Jonah? Look at verse 3. He's not just a little bit emotional. He says, now, O Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. He's done. And this is the second time in the book he's tried to end his life. The first time was at the hand of the sailors. Just, just throw me in. I don't think that was totally that Jonah was repentant there. He just would rather die than go tell these people that God loved him. You call him the, the suicidal prophet. He, he wants to die Again, by love God. God in this passage asked Jonah three questions. And I don't know if you guys have ever had a parent or a teacher or a pastor in your life that when you sit down with them and you got this complex issue going on and you lay it out there and they respond with a question and at first you're like, come on, just tell me what to do. You know, just lay it out. Three steps and that's your first reaction, but then as you start to think about their question, if they ask it skillfully, you're like, wow, that question really like, helps me put this in perspective. God is the ultimate teacher, and he's the ultimate, even in Jesus' ministry, you saw it, asking questions to get people to the truth. And that's what God's gonna do with Jonah three times here. 
We saw where Jonah's at. And you know what God says? The first question, the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? And you can imagine Jonah thinking through this. Have you, have you any right to be angry? And the, a better translation might even be, are you right, Jonah? In your anger about what just happened here, are you right to be angry? And I think Jonah's first reaction, if he's like most of us, is he starts justifying it. Darn right, God. I got this one right on the head. And I told you some of the historical examples of how cruel those people are. I just want to give you a couple quotes from some of their leaders. Maybe Jonah even knew of some of these quotes. I don't know. One of their leaders, who was a leader shortly before Jonah was around, talked about his treatment of someone he captured. He said, I pierced his chin with my hand dagger, through his jaw I passed a rope, so he passed a rope through that hole, put a dog chain upon him, and made him live in a kennel. That's how they treated one of their prisoners. So Jonah's thinking, God, yeah, I'm absolutely right. These people are crazy. Another quote, just how arrogant some of their kings were. This is a quote from one of their powerful rulers, or at least he thought he was powerful. He said, I am powerful. I am all powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored, and I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings, the chosen one of Asher, Naboo, and Marduk. And Star Wars fans, this has nothing to do with the planet of Naboo. These were gods. He's like, I am the man. So Jonah's like, these people are violent, they're proud. I'm thinking he's probably, his initial reaction is, yeah, when I look at them, God, I'm absolutely right. But what's God trying to get Jonah to think about? What's God after here? Some of this takes a little bit of holy guessing, and I'll admit I could be wrong on this, but I think part of what God wants Jonah to remember is Jonah in light of the fact that I just saved your life with a fish, I kept you alive in a fish for three days after you, a prophet who knew a whole lot better than to run away from me, ran away from me, I gave you a second chance, and you're not even willing to pass that second chance on to anyone else. You, you love it for you. You're so glad for my grace in your life, but... You're not willing to pass it on to anyone else. These people that didn't know anything about how to be saved until I sent you to them. You're not even willing to pass it on to them. What's God say? He says, be merciful as I am merciful. Isn't that what he wants for his kids? I showed you so much mercy. And we run into the same trap as Jonah. We love to look at other people and find groups that we define as that's worse than me. It makes us feel good. God can never, never love those homosexual activists. Or God could never love someone that had an abortion. Or God could never love a murderer or a child molester or my ex-spouse who continues to make my life Horrible. You've got people in your own mind. That boss that fired me unjustly. I don't know who comes to mind. God can never love them. And what we run the risk of is well stated in a poem. It's a four-line poem by a guy named Jonathan Swift. If we're not careful, we as God's church 
can say this with our lives. Listen to this. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There's no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. I doubt any of us would go out of here and say those exact four lines, but are any of us living that way? Hey, I'm glad I'm saved. But man, that group of people over there, there's no way God could love them. I'm not, I'm not showing Jesus' love to that group, that guy, that gal. Friend of mine, another part of the country, he's in a situation where his marriage ended in a divorce. And I don't know the other side. Obviously, you only get one side of every story. But his ex-wife, from all I can tell, is doing everything in her power to ruin his life. Financially, slander of things that aren't true. You name it, just, just down the list. And this man, just an example to me of what God's after here, be merciful as I am merciful. He actually asked me to add her to a prayer list. He's got five people in his life. Would you add her to a prayer list? Ask that uh, God would meet her and, and bring salvation and healing into her life. I thought, man, you know, I've never been through a divorce. I can't imagine how much that hurts to have someone you once loved so much trying to ruin your every step. And for him to still ask for that love to be shown to her, that reflected God to me. So I don't know if there's anybody, any group like that that you've just written off that said, no, Jesus could never love them. What God's saying to Jonah here is you have no right to think that way. It's not just hating someone that needs Jesus. It's also being unwilling to forgive them. You know, I I bet you if I went around this room, probably, hopefully the majority of us wouldn't say I hate someone that, that needs Jesus, but probably a lot of us struggle with this forgiveness thing. And it's okay to say it's a struggle. It's hard. I'm not telling you this is something that's gotta be easy. I'm not telling you it's gotta be something that you feel like. I am telling us it's something that Jesus talks strongly about. You remember Matthew 18? He tells this great parable about a guy that owes like equivalent of $3 to a man. And there's another man that owes like a million to a king. And the king forgives the man that owes the million the debt. He says, hey, it's forgiven. And then the guy that's forgiven the million goes to somebody that owes him three bucks, says, give me my three bucks, and he won't give it to him. And he takes this guy that owes him three bucks to court, says, you're going to jail because you owe me that three bucks. He goes on and he says, the king heard about what this guy forgiven a million did. He calls him in and says, because of what you did to that guy, you're gonna be tortured in jail. I'm gonna throw you in jail now because you didn't pass along the mercy I gave to you. The end of the parable, Matthew 18, 32, it went, the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then here's the kicker. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So I don't know who it is you're thinking of that that has wronged you, and we all got those people. 
God says, hey, as long as you hold on to that, there's gonna be torture, and we know what that's like. When you hold on to that bitterness, he's not talking about Christians losing their salvation. He's talking about that battle where you wake up every day and every moment of every day is consumed with bitterness, and it pulls you down. It takes your health. It takes your focus. It robs you of joy. That's God's discipline in your life if you're not passing on the forgiveness that he gave to you. It's not saying the person's off the hook. It's saying you're gonna leave them in God's sovereignty. God's much more capable of dealing with that person than you are anyway. He's got many more tools of discipline to bring them to where they need to be. It's a burden you weren't meant to carry. I know some of you have stories that I can't even begin to imagine. I've had hurts in my life, I, I, but I consider my life to be relatively easy compared to some. So as I talk to you, I, I wanna just say, am I saying something that sounds impossible? Yeah, it is impossible for you. But I also go back to where we were a couple months ago. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got God himself, the Holy Spirit, living inside of you. Can you do it? No. Can he do it? You betcha. So I'm telling you something impossible, yeah, for you, not for God. Go on to see it's a question of priorities in Jonah's life. Verse five. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in his shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. I've done studies around this site where this city was, and there was a hill about 1,200 feet high to the east. And you can imagine Jonah climbing up there. He builds a little shelter, probably out of some little plants and brush. And it says he waited to see what would happen to the city. And we've got to guess a little bit as to what was going on in his mind. You know, is he thinking maybe, maybe, just maybe God's going to change his mind and toast these people? You know, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and maybe I could watch. Is that what's going on? I don't know. Maybe he's waiting for some more explanation of, God, why in the world would you spare these people? Maybe he's just hanging out to figure out, God, what are you doing? We don't know exactly why he's there. But it says, the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah, this guy's got a lot of emotions like a lot of us. He goes from greatly displeased about what God did saving all these people to he's very happy about the vine. He's like, yeah, I got some shade. He's in a place in Mesopotamia where the average temperature in the summer was 110. Some of you from Phoenix and Tucson know what, what, what Jonah's talking about. You find that shade and you're like, man, that's good. I, I got a friend that worked in Phoenix a couple weeks ago. He spent a 12-hour day on a roof doing roofing, 115 degrees, Man, that's probably what Jonah would have felt like out here. So this plant grows up, and you can tell there's a little bit of a miracle because it grew up overnight. I mean, God's involved here. He sent this plant just like he sent the wind earlier, and he sent the fish. God's in control. And there was such a plant uh, called the castor plant that, that would grow up to like 12 feet tall relatively quickly, and it had these huge leaves. Some people speculate that's what it was. Anyway, Jonah's very happy. But God, God he's, he's up to something 
teaching Jonah a lesson, right? Verse 7, same God that provided the plant says the next day God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And I'm thinking some of you guys would love to have that kind of power, right? And you're thinking of all the ways you could use that, and that's exactly why you don't have it, okay? <laughs> because because God uses that power in conjunction with all of his other attributes, his sovereignty, his goodness, his kindness, okay? You and I, I'm not so sure we'd, we'd always do that. It goes on. Not only the worm, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Some translations actually call it the scorcher. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. I hate being hot. I don't know if there's any others in this room. If there's ever a time where I'm going to be tempted to be angry, irritable, it's when I'm hot. And I want you to listen to this quote. This wind was called a Sirocco. It's a scientific phenomenon that God used here. He sent it at this time for his purposes. It says, during the period of a Sirocco, the temperature rises steeply, sometimes even climbing during the night, and it remains high, up to 22 degrees above the average. At times, every scrap of moisture seems to be, have been extracted from the air so that one has the curious feeling that one's skin has been drawn much tighter than usual. Sirocco days are trying to the temper, tend to make even the mildest people irritable and fretful, and to snap at one another for apparently no reason at all. Modern scientists have done studies of this Sirocco wind, and they've actually found that there are so many positive ions in this easterly wind that it actually messes with levels of your brain chemicals like serotonin and others that when they go low, cause depression. So there's a whole lot going on in this wind, and there's a whole lot going on that God is doing here. And you can guess what Jonah's response to this is after we saw earlier. Any guesses before Misty turns it? Kill me. Just take me, God. He wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live. And God goes right to the heart of the matter again. He asks almost the same question as he did the first time, but it's specific to this situation. He says, do you have a right to be angry? He adds, about the vine. About the vine. And Jonah's answer, I do. <laughs> I do have a right to be angry about this, God. I am angry enough to die. <laughs> and God is really getting at the heart of the matter here. He hears Jonah's response. Listen to what he says. Jonah, you've been concerned about this vine. You didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I, this is his third question, should I not be concerned about that great city? What's he saying to, to Jonah here? He's saying, Jonah, you had nothing to do with that vine popping out of the ground. You did not 
plant it, you did not water it, you did not fertilize it, and you got so attached to it because it gave you a little comfort, didn't you? You liked that, didn't you? Guess what, Jonah? I made those people in Nineveh. I created them. I did have something to do with them. And just like you, Jonah, they're made in my image. You're worried about a stupid little vine and your comfort. And you can't understand why I'm concerned about at least 120,000 people that needed me. And when it says they didn't know their left hand from their right, some say that was the children in the city. Some say that means they had no idea how to be forgiven for their sins. Either way, God's saying, I care about these people. Now, Jonah, you tell me who's being absurd. Who's being ridiculous? Because basically at the beginning of this chapter, you accused me of being ridiculous. You, you laid out an exact list of who I am and who I've revealed myself to be, and you don't like it. You think I'm wrong. Jonah, I'm not the one who's wrong. He cared more about a plant that grew up overnight and died overnight than the souls that needed God. I think there's an easy application in our lives. What do we care about the most? If we're honest, not the church answer that we just spit out because it's right, but what consumes our time? What consumes our passion, our energy? Is it the souls around us that are on their way to hell for an eternity because they don't know Jesus? Is it reaching them for God's glory? Or is it temporary things? Maybe not a vine, but maybe it's a car, you know. I'm constantly consumed with getting the latest new pieces on there or in there, and I gotta keep it faster, older, cleaner than my neighbor's is. Maybe it's my position at work. I gotta keep climbing that ladder. I gotta get higher pay, because that's where it's at, man. I don't have time for my neighbors and other people. I got work to do. Maybe it's your home. Guys, you know, if you spend all your time like, I gotta keep my grass just a little bit greener than my neighbors. I gotta make sure that's mowed and fertilized and just mm, so nice. Or ladies, maybe it's the inside. Like, I gotta make sure my interior is better than that neighbor's. And man, I spend all my time just on Pinterest and in better homes and gardens just finding just that right thing. That's, that's what drives me. Teenagers, maybe it's the latest video games. Like, I gotta stay up on those latest video games or, or the clothes, man. They talk a lot about swag these days. I gotta have my swag. That means swagger for some of your older folks. I, I get my swag through my clothes. It gives me some confidence. You know, uh, who wins the election in November? I wanna challenge us as a church this year. I'm not gonna go Jehovah's Witness on you and tell you you shouldn't vote. I think we should be a part of the political process, but it grieves me when I see that some Christians seem more passionate about talking about their favorite candidate than they do about talking about Jesus Christ. It's as though they put all their hope in who's gonna be in the White House. And last time I checked, that job comes with term limits, four years or eight years. We serve a savior that has a throne that lasts forever. So should we vote? Yeah. Should we vote according to biblical principles? Yeah. 
But my primary hope should be not on who's in the White House, but who's on that eternal throne. And you know how you know that? You could compare like how much time do I spend reading the political section versus how much time do I spend reading my Bible. And how much time do I spend talking about Jesus compared to I, how much time I spend talking about my favorite candidate. I'll tell you real quick where you're putting your hope. Because I, I talk to some people, they seem like, man, if this election comes out one way, it's all over. It's all over. And I got my preferences. I'm not saying don't have your preferences. Study the issues and vote biblically. Either way, I got a God who's still on the throne. I got a Savior that wants to change this world one heart at a time through the power of the gospel. And that's where my hope lies. So all these things I mentioned, car, position at work, home, video games, clothes, who wins the election, none of them are bad things in and of themselves. The problem, that vine wasn't bad. In fact, it was a gift from God. The problem became when the vine became more important to Jonah than the eternal destiny of people that God had called him to reach. That's where it became an idol. And I want to close by telling you guys a story about a man named Jack. I shared a little bit about it earlier. Because I think what happened with Jack and how God used Matt and Becky and their missional community to point this 82-year-old to Jesus leaves us with some modern-day lessons that we can apply from the book of Jonah. Because early on, Matt and Becky moved in that neighborhood about four years ago, and and they already believed in making disciples, sharing Jesus' love in tangible ways. I was over there at Christmas time with them, and he wanted to talk with the pastor. So Matt and I took some food over to his house, and he said, Pastor, I got to tell you, I'm real skeptical about this Christianity thing. Got a lot of questions. So well, that's good. What are they? You know, let's talk about them. Let's, let's start a conversation. And, and as we started talking, Matt and I thought about the case for Christ. A lot of his questions were answered in that book, and Matt and Becky went out and got him an audio copy on CDs. But they had some excuses from the get-go not to reach this man. I know this past year in particular, they, they bought a Mercury Mountaineer that the first month they had it spent more time in the shop than it did on the road. And I know how frustrating that is when you buy a car and you talk about there's one more excuse. God... I don't have time to reach this guy. You allowed this to happen to my car, so I, now I gotta spend all my time on this, not to mention I gotta provide for my family. We gotta raise our two children. God, there's just too much. They're busy. They had things that could have become more important, but they continued. What, a month or two ago, the missional community, it's time for a work day, and Matt approached Jack about it. Matt stood there and said, Jack, you're my friend, and we love you, and this is just one way we can show you that love. That's it. We just want to love you. And they could have given up. Do you know what they would have missed out on? Last Sunday night, they, they had had Jack over for lunch again, and Jack asked them, hey, are you guys going to church tonight? They said, yeah, and he said, can I come? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Sorry, God's a gracious and compassionate God. I know what's going to happen. <laughs> My brother's the pastor. <laughs> they brought him his meal week, and they sat him, sat him next to Scott Madsen, who, and I don't want to say uh, just happened to be, I, I see God at work even in this, when Jack had needed physical therapy earlier this year. Guess who his physical therapist was? 
our elder, Scott Madsen. So God's working on Jack from multiple angles, right? Sits him down next to Scott because Jack can't see real good, can't tell always what's going on, so Scott could explain. Matt was up here on the worship team, saw Jack during the service sort of laughing to himself and talking a little bit, and Matt thought, oh boy, what's he think? And then communion came around, and he said to Scott, what's that? And Scott told him communion. And Jack said, I better wait on that. I'm just starting out here. At the end of the night, Matt came time to take Jack home. And they were in the Mercury Mountaineer that's now working. Or no, was it the other one? Okay, the Malibu. <laughs> Pray for that Mountaineer. <laughs> They're on the way home, and Matt says, so what'd you think? And uh, Jack said, you know, I couldn't hear a whole lot. I could tell there were a lot of different people talking, but I kept hearing the name of Jesus. <laughs> I told Matt, I was like, man, if there's any one word that he needed to hear, that's the one. Matt said, I saw you back there sort of laughing a little bit. What were you doing? And, and he said, I was sort of talking to God. You know, I didn't, tell me if I get this wrong, but it's, he, he sort of didn't know what he needed from God, but he knew he needed something. And, and so Matt was ready to lay down the line in the car. You know, I said, Jack, I'm 34, you're 82. And Micaiah in the back, my nephew interjected, I'm 85, got a laugh. <laughs> Matt said, we're not guaranteed tomorrow, Jack. And the biggest thing me and Becky want to know is that you know where you're going to spend your eternity. You know, we've all sinned, and we've got a Savior that, that paid for that. And Matt took into Romans 3.23, where he said, all have sinned, Jack. I'm not saying you're a criminal, but all have sinned. And Jack said, well, I guess I need that. And right there in that Mercury Mountaineer. Malibu, sorry. <laughs> Curse that Mountaineer. It's even messing up my sermon. All right. <laughs> he... <laughs> sorry. Jonah would say something like that. <laughs> he prayed to accept Christ in the shotgun seat of a Malibu. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Many reasons to give up on that along the way. But God was at work. And as I said, you know, Matt was beside himself. Back, they both were texting everybody they could, calling everybody they could. And what I see in God's question at the end, should I not be concerned about that great city? I could hear him saying, should I not be concerned about Jack? And we've all got Jacks in our lives. And God's saying to you tonight, should I not be concerned about that one? Lord, I'm so thankful that you're a God of mercy. You are slow to anger. You're compassionate. God, you're compassionate with your kids the way you were with Jonah, God. You give us patience and you work with us through our bad attitudes when we disagree with you. I thank you for that. I thank you for your compassion for Nineveh. God, you should be concerned about that great city and we should be concerned about ours and our neighbors and our waitresses and 
the people we work with, God, we should be concerned. God, we should be concerned about our own kids and the young people in our lives. I'm mindful that 150 years after this book, the message of trust in God had not been passed on from generation to generation. And the whole book of Nahum records the fact that Nineveh was destroyed 150 years later because those later generations did not trust you, did not believe in you. They went back to their ways. God, as we think about neighbors and others, we gotta think about our own kids. Help us to pass it on. Because while you are slow to anger, you are a just God. You want us to come to you in in belief and repentance and trust. God, I pray that if there are any in this room tonight that feel like Ninevites, Lord, beyond your reach, out of hope, maybe they even feel like they shouldn't be reached. God, they're not here by mistake tonight. Reach in their lives and convince them that Jesus died for their sins, just as he did for all of ours. He rose again. It's by turning to that, trusting in that, that they can be made right with you. God, do that work. And Lord, for those of us who are in Jonah's shoes, we know you and we've known you for a while. We don't know how Jonah answered that question when he said, should I not be concerned about that great city? I hope he got it. Maybe the fact that he wrote this book and left it for us is testament to that. I don't know. But I hope we get it, Lord. Let's be concerned. Share your heart, the heart of a missionary God. Even as we give our offering tonight, Lord, I pray that it would be for that purpose, for the advancement of your kingdom and your gospel, be it here in our city or Asia or the Philippines. Lord, use this offering for your glory and to bring souls to you. In Jesus' name, amen.